You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Conspiranormal, where the nexus of conspiracy theory and the paranormal meet. And now, we join the show already in progress with your hosts, Adam and Seraphiel. Alan, did you know? Uh, did you know Carrie Thornley? Oh yeah, I knew Carrie. Boy, people talk about Terry Rist as being an obscure person, and Carrie was much harder to pin down. But actually, I knew Carrie. We were, oh, how shall I put it, active in the same fringe political circles for a number of years, and uh, uh, I actually uh, interviewed him at the. Uh, late OTO Lodge in Atlanta, Ulysses Lodge, along with the then Lodge Master and one or two hangers on. And somewhere, I think that interview still exists, but I'm not sure that I have it because it was originally recorded on cassette, three cassettes actually. He does go, well, he did go on and on and on about being her son and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, that's Carrie. <clears throat> but uh, he was a very, very unusual person. He was totally a um, hippie district street person who lived at his mother's house and died under slightly mysterious circumstances. But then, you know, most of the people that uh, that worked for Illuminate Press died under mysterious circumstances, including the publisher. And then there was no more Illuminate, which was my first publisher, so... Yeah, Jim Keith also was part of that too. Yes, he was indeed. Yeah, Jim Jim was an interesting guy, but he did play two two streets. Speaking of the air gun, uh, two streets that were very difficult to keep together. 
One was UFO stuff, and uh, although, you know, with a, uh, an unusual take on it, like I have room to talk. And the other was, uh, you know, the militia thing. And I was once doing uh, an autograph session with, uh, at a UFO convention with him. And uh, now that I think about it, Ron Bonds brought us the books to sell. His books and my books, his sold much better than mine. But there was a, a, a militia convention on the floor below where we were having the UFO convention. And I noticed a lot of the people who were clearly from the militia convention were coming up to meet Jim Keith and get his autograph. And I thought, I didn't say anything, but I thought, uh, he really is skating a very, very thin rail here. And sure enough, you know, he sprains an ankle and dies at uh, Burning Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, that's the. It is a strange, strange thing. We've talked to um, Ken Thomas too about this. I, I guess you're familiar with Ken as well. Yeah, I, I don't know him, but yeah, I, I knew Jim fairly well. Yeah, it's very strange that he goes to Burning Man, he has that accident and then like a couple of days later I guess he goes in for surgery and then he dies I think is what happened. Yeah, well, the point being that these are uh, with uh, uh, Ron Bonds, the publisher of Illumina and Jim Keith and Kerry Thornley, none of them reached 50 and uh, that's not typical and all of them died under relatively mysterious circumstances depending on, you know, whose account you uh, have of it. Ron was the most uh, weird. He had dinner at a Mexican restaurant here in Atlanta, and uh, his wife had the same dinner, and other people there had the same dinner. And then a little later in the evening, he uh, developed uh, a toxic reaction, which was called food poisoning, but I argue if it was food poisoning, why didn't anybody else get sick? Because apparently nobody else did. And he was dead before morning, dead as a doornail. And that, and with him, Illuminate Press. So. And did this all happened at the same time? Because I think Thornley died like 98, I think. It all happened within the same general period. I yeah. mean, it, yeah. it concluded with Bonds because that what they have in common, is, other than dying, uh, dying prematurely, we'll say, is that they were all published by Illuminate Press. So, so was I, but I don't do malicious stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it appears that we've already started. So, Alan, um, welcome to Conspiranormal. Normal. Um, uh. Hey, I'm not normal, but I am a conspiracy. <laughs> so we're going to talk. As you about, will find out in the next sixty seconds. We're going to talk about uh, a couple of different subjects. Uh, we're going to talk about PB Randolph, which is something that uh, someone that's come up in our research a lot and it's come up on the show a lot. And we're also going to talk about your famous secret cipher, the UFO knots or the UFO knots or however you say it. Euphonauts is correct, but everybody seems to, just so long as you don't say UFO nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that, and that. That one, you know, I kind of 
object to a little bit, uh, though there is truth in it. Uh, yeah. But I really want to. I wanted to start off. I really want to get into like your background and how you started studying ufology, and then you got into the occult, and then you started to kind of combine those two fields. Well, it's more than that. I mean, I. I really can't tell you when I first became interested in these things because it's essentially lifelong. I can remember when I was just a wee lad and it was the uh, July 1952. The reason I know that is not because I was old enough to know anything about you know dates and times, but the fact is that every July my folks wanted to go to Miami from Augusta, Georgia, and then Atlanta, Georgia, and my father would go barreling down the highway at 120, and we'd make it in one day. But from the time I was two on, we were in either Miami or Daytona every July. And in July 1952, um, that was when the UFO wave over the... uh, uh, restricted airspace in D.C., among other places, uh, took took place, and it was headline news all over the country. And I remember my father commenting on that, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I can't remember what I what I was doing a minute before he mentioned that, or a minute afterwards. But it's one of those early life memories that, you know, is frozen in time. I can. Uh, I know where I was standing when I heard it and why my ears did the equivalent of perking up when when that was mentioned at that early age. I really can't tell you, but clearly it was something that was a matter of interest. Of course, the first movie I ever saw was Destination Moon, so uh, perhaps that was influential. And then um, sometime around when uh, I turned 14 or so, I developed a, a keen interest in, among other things, the occult, ufology, uh, cryptozoology, although it wasn't called that then. Um, in fact, it wasn't called anything. It was, you know, the Loch Ness Monster was the Loch Ness Monster. Bigfoot was Bigfoot. Sure. And, of course, the Yeti was the abominable snowman, <laughs> which, you know, I think he takes baths regularly, so I'm... I don't think he's abominable. There was no Harry. unified science called, or <laughs> no. there's no unified thing called cryptozoology. And later, um, after uh, uh, college and grad school in Arizona, I developed an interest in uh, cutting edge physics, and uh, they all pulled together for me uh, sometime in the 1970s. I realized that things that were being said about any one of these areas, UFOs or uh, men in black or uh, cryptids or uh, like the Mothman, which is making a reappearance now in the Midwest, which is more than interesting, that all of them seem to be the same basic source under seen under differing circumstances and perhaps just uh, differing uh, efforts to resolve them by human eyes, which were not, you know, they were in recent geological history. We dropped down from the trees, looked out, and 
spent the next uh, 10,000 years or so trying to run away from the saber-toothed tigers and eat the mastodons out of existence. That's not a really, really good evolutionary background for, um, for seeing things that may be beyond our kin. And I'm not sure that what we see is what actually is manifest. And when I hit on the uh, uh, many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, 20 years later than most people that are quantum physicists, but uh, 20 years before, you know, it became any kind of general knowledge, um, I realized that maybe the, the two things are, are closely related. So it's, it's a range of interests. And then I have the sociological interest as well, but I wish some sociologists would look into this entire field of, re not the phenomena as such, that's not sociology, but uh, the reaction to phenomena. I only know of one study, and that was done in the 1950s by Leon Festinger, and uh, uh, was the source of the notion of cognitive dissonance, which I think has a uh, has a bearing on on all of this stuff but what I have noticed first of all is that the theories precede the phenomena and second that people in each of these areas have long since become tribal and hostile to the other areas I actually had a, uh, a leader of a major occult group tell me not to publish my UFO books because that would give me a bad reputation, and I right. sort of, sort of thought, hmm. Well, let's see. What kind of reputation does the occult have out there in the heartland? <laughs> <laughs> you you weren't too worried about what they had to say. I, I uh, no, 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 well, yeah, uh, only because uh, I, I was a member of said organization at the time, but I'm not now, and haven't been for a long time. So, yeah, and. Partly because of that sort of thing, because uh, we ought all be free to explore these things. However, that is typical of the resistance. Parapsychologists think that they are a legitimate science, just on the edge of, well, they've been on the edge of recognition since the 1930s. So that's a long, long edge <laughs> that, uh, uh, so they won't look at at any of these things that are, hmm, how shall I put it, more fringe than they see themselves as being. And uh, I, I would love to see parapsychological experimental techniques applied to, uh, say, uh, occult assertions in the occult community about magic and so forth. But to do that, you would have to have some people very, you know, knowledgeable about uh, the, the paranormal in, a, in the scientific uh, investigation sense, you know, someone equivalent to uh, Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia and uh, Jim Tucker, his successor, to take a look at these other uh, phenomena or asserted phenomena and... Yeah, that's the reincarnation studies. Yeah, that... Yeah. I wish there was a UFO study comparable to that, but there isn't. I mean, I've read all of Stevenson's books, and I've read, uh, since his death, I've read Jim Tucker's uh, uh, books. And these people are 
very, very, very serious, and but they are. Uh, they won't go very far afield of where they are because they see themselves as walking at edge, and I imagine funding is an issue with them as well. Well, I, I know that there is, um, I don't know necessarily this is a sociological study, but I know that uh, Ray Hernandez is out there, and I saw him give a pr- presentation yeah. in Knoxville uh, comparing some alien contactees or abductees and those experiences with near-death experiences. Have you, uh, oh yeah, that that that's something I uh, I've been talking about on my Facebook page just the last few days. That okay. uh, um, I mean, it's not. Uh, it, it, there are a number of people who've seen the connection there, but NDEs are okay with the parapsychologists. In fact, it's one of their you know major interests. Sure. But but uh, UFO abductions are not. They're no nos. And yet the similarities uh, in, in a lot of these cases is so great and so obvious to someone like me who is more eclectic. I don't know why it's not obvious to everyone. But, you know, I, that's that's tribalism in America yeah, today. Yeah, I think we, we've talked about this a lot on this show, just how all these different fields, ghosts and um ufologists and cryptozoologists how they don't really meet up a lot and those of us that sit there and say hey wait a minute we think there's commonalities between all of this stuff we're kind of just the odd men out well actually I can tell you this Um, when I first started talking about the the connections between these various things there's only one organization in the world that I know of that was advocating that from the mid-1940s on, and that's Borderland Sciences, a somewhat borderland organization, but uh, they were way, way, way ahead of their time, uh, at least under their, you know, their first director, who is Mead Lane, who had his finger in all these pies, and a number of others that I won't mention here, but, uh, but uh, uh, they were way, way ahead of their time, but nevertheless, um, when we when we look into it, we see that there is this extreme skepticism across the board and say, for example, all of the major UFO organizations of the 1950s to 1980s uh, were dead set against venturing into any of these other areas. They basically, if they were asked, they would say something to the effect they're unrelated. And uh, the, the groups that were around then were NICAP and APRO and, uh, and uh, what was then the Midwest UFO Network. Uh, uh, now, uh, the, whatever they call it now, it's... Uh, Move on. Uh, it's the, the acronym's the same, but the, they are no longer just the Midwest, yeah. although they do have a Midwestern... Uh, conservatism inherent in the organization mutual and uh, UFO network. That's it. Yeah, which is distinguished from the mutual radio network, where <laughs> which was which came and went. As far as I know, it no longer exists. But uh, Frank Edwards used to yeah. work for them. And so, so for you, getting into uh, UFOs and the occult was almost simultaneous. So you've had that kind of perspective, broader perspective, since the beginning. Yeah, since you were a teenager, right? Uh, yeah, and 
uh, I don't know whether it's a Freudian thing or not, but it was all sort of just immediately post-puberty that I got interested in all these things at once. However, it is true that the uh, my first exposure to any of the literature in that were the, the things that Ray Palmer was doing with uh, his then Flying Saucers magazine. And he had another one called Search, and I was a subscriber to the old version of Fate magazine back in in the day in the 1960s and 70s. And it is a uh, they they kind of covered all of these things. They never said that you know that they were all related, but they were all covered in the magazine because I guess it was a catch-all for weird stuff. And um, uh, so I, I was exposed to to that perspective early, but by the late 1960s, I had started a thing called, uh, in addition to my regular sane UFO newsletter, uh, with the vast circulation in the pre-internet world of 200, 300 maybe, because I had to, you know, mimeograph it, write it, mimeograph it, collate it, staple it, put it in envelopes, Lick stamps, lick envelopes, <laughs> staggered down to the to the government mailbox because you didn't want to stick it in the neighborhood mailbox in that neighborhood, which is just about two blocks from where I sit right now. People had a habit of putting cherry bombs in the mailboxes and blowing them up, so it was safer. <laughs> there was there was not a lot to do in Northwest Atlanta back in the day, so um, and kids were unruly, me included. So um, so I had to do all of that to reach 200, 300 people. Now I'm, I reach thousands every day, courtesy of the Internet. So while it's a mixed bag with much misinformation on it, look at what we're able to do right here, right now. Without the Internet, it wouldn't be done. So, how, uh, how did being from Georgia impact all this? Well, it gave me this heavy accent from <laughs> I can sing the theme from uh, the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Green Acres is the place to be. I live in the middle of uh, the megalopolis of Atlanta, and that's where I spent most of my... Uh, being from Georgia, I don't know. Being from mostly since the age of 10, anyway, from Atlanta. Atlanta isn't in the South. Get yourself. It's geographically in the south, but it is an urban hub oh, yeah. of the same caliber as Cincinnati or Chicago. Or, I used know. to. I used to live there for. Th- I lived there for three years. So I totally agree. What period? Uh, two thousand to two thousand three. Yeah. Well, it, it was beginning to shape up into what it what it is. I mean, it's over five million now, and the the interstate is con- almost continuously a traffic jam. Well, uh, Nashville Nashville is getting there. It's catching up to Atlanta. Sure it is. <laughs> well, you've got the Parthenon. So. Yeah, yes, that we, we do. do. <laughs> or should I say the other Parthenon? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not the the original is sort of in ruins. So I guess. Yeah. Well, I was, just, I was just wondering if there's any like particular insights or uh, a different takes on maybe occultism or anything else that. You know, would have been different if you would have grown up somewhere else. That's a really, really interesting question, and I don't think I've ever been asked that before. 
there are some issues that I've found with uh, communication with uh, mostly with the uh, occultists I used to uh, be affiliated with in that southern manners and i think that will die with my generation because most as i said atlanta really isn't in the south and most of the people here today are no longer from here they're from points north south east and west and uh there's really no local culture there's just uh atlanta uh, american interstate culture if you get what i mean um where was I going with that? Help me here. I'm old and forget things. As far as you were saying something about Southern manners in your relations, I think, with a Oh, yeah, yeah. They, in other parts of the country, particularly on the West Coast, uh, I would have a certain amount of uh, uh, Southern courtesy, even when I was talking about something that I totally disagreed with. And I noticed that the... Um, that the occultists that I was talking to, if I disagreed with them on fundamentals, I went into the, uh, what I call Southern dueling ethic, which is you, as you disagree more and more, you get, you speak slower and slower and your voice gets deeper and deeper and you get more and more courteous until you reach some ill-defined point, which in the past meant slap them across the face and say, have your seconds ready at dawn, we'll face off and settle this like gentlemen. But they didn't perceive it that way. They, they perceived it as uh, acquiescence because courtesy is not as common in those areas. Uh, so they perceived uh, uh, my getting slow and decorative in my language as acquiescence in their totally wrong points of view. But like I, I did with the uh, grand, uh, the U.S. Grandmaster of one of the occult orders of antiquity, so-called, alleged. Um, uh, I gave this talk about pretty much what I just said about using the techniques of parapsychology, formal parapsychology, to test whether the magic works or whether it doesn't. Because if it doesn't, it's an expensive and weird hobby to have if the results are nothing. On the other hand, if it has a you know, negative effect on people, um, that's something that uh, parapsychological techniques could ascertain. And if, in fact, the results are paranormal, that is a validation of some of the claims that are made for that sort of thing. He listened politely, polite California bred gentleman, and then went on to the next subject, never heard any more about it, because that did not compute. It did not compute. So let's move to, uh, let's talk about P.B. Randolph, because I know that you've written a I guess you could you could say it's a book or a, a small piece about uh, PB Randolph. Oh, I wrote a book about it. It's it's out of print, but you can probably find a um, a um, used copy from you know like uh, um, well any of the major collector services or usually on Amazon. I mean, I don't get any more uh, you know uh, 
royalties on the book, but it's called the, um, um, the Story of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. And of necessity, it deals a lot with P.B. Randolph because the uh, HBL, um, their basic inner teaching was P.B. Randolph's secret teachings about sexual magic. And uh, that was, you know, in the mid to late uh, 19th century when that was really a... a uh, not a topic that was uh, uh, open at all. So they even had things on the cover printed, but not published for private use only. And uh, the HBFL uh, continued to teach that particular brand until it was taken up by other societies that conveniently uh, more or less forgot about Randolph altogether, probably for racist reasons in, in my very firm opinion. Yeah. Very likely. I mean, you would not hear Aleister Crowley saying anything about P.B. Randolph, but in fact, his most secret teachings uh, are directly in line with, with Randolph's, uh, quote, secret, unquote, teaching. And those really center around sexual magic practices and the idea of the concentration of the will in conjunction with them. Exactly. And that's something that I, I'm not saying that Randolph invented it, but Randolph was the American um, exponent of that in a time when that was very unusual. I could probably name five people in, in, in the United States uh, that even remotely got into the same areas as Randolph in the mid-19th century. And he used, uh, again, for other reasons than, than uh, Southern manners, uh, just not wanting to get lynched in kindly New Orleans, I suppose, uh, he would he avoided any kind of overly, what he would call trashy language. And But nevertheless, it's, it's very clear to anybody that knows anything about uh, sexual gnosis that he was right on the money. And wherever he got it from, I know where he said he got it from, but um, I can't. I can only confirm in a general sort of way that uh, Eastern sources, uh, the one that's overused in this country, is Tantra. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, not all of Tantra is about sexuality, and uh, but <laughs> Americans tend to uh, take it as, oh, that's the. Uh, that's the sex stuff, right? Yeah, it sells more books than uh, sitting in a meditative posture for 48 <laughs> hours saying om, 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 although that has its value. So um, um, he traveled, as have many of the most interesting occult luminaries through the he traveled first through Europe and then through uh, uh, Egypt and Asia Minor, and he picked up these ideas. Actually, there's a couple of sections in my current book, God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, um, plug, 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 that's God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, Twice. 
but Randolph did the same thing in about 12 books, including Euless, which mm-hmm. unfortunately the there are no rights to any of these books now. Nothing can be copyrighted um, that long after the author's death, let alone after publication. But uh, I think it's 70 years now. Woe to the people who think they own the Crowley copyrights, because Crowley croaked 70 years, 74 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. May he rest in pieces. Actually, that's literally true, according to the story I heard. See, he left his organizations to this guy, Carl Germer, in New Jersey, who was from Germany. You know, Germany during that period is you know interesting place to be from. Did a little time in the uh, concentration camp for non-Jews, which you know that's it was like. Freemasons and others, there was not an extermination camp, but much is made of that. Moved to New Jersey and they sent him Alistair Crowley's ashes in an urn. And the story I heard, which may or may not be true, but if it isn't, it ought to be, is that Mrs. Germer was not amused by all this stuff. So one day she and, and Carl were having an argument and she picked up the urn and threw it at him missed him and it hit a tree in his backyard and there are the pieces of Alistair Crowley blowing in the wind. <laughs> so that's what happened to the great beast. Okay. And the great beast is is in a tree in New Jersey, which reminds <laughs> me of a George Carlin routine where it went into I belong to this religion, Carlin said. That believes that when you die, you go to this garage in New Jersey, put those two together, and, you know, the tree and the garage. Uh-huh. Hey. Um, and then I'm so- not that far off the deep end. I'm just, just relaying right, some, right. Of the, some of the scuttlebutt that one hears in these circles that don't usually make it to the, um, to the broadcast universe because people like, uh, you know, uh, anyway, so getting back to Randolph, uh, I I think he's beginning to be appreciated now, yeah. partly because of uh, Devaney's uh, book and partly because of uh, the other book on the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, the one I didn't write but helped out with, uh, uh, Jocelyn Godwin and Associates, including Devaney. Um, those are now, you know, they're ancient history, 1990s, but nevertheless, since then, I've noticed Randolph, uh, Randolph's name pops up a lot, and in my latter days in the occult order of antiquity, I managed to, uh, to get, uh, get Randolph appointed to the uh, uh, Order of the Lion, I think they call it, which is totally meaningless except it's, you know, a step towards Gnostic sainthood, which He's the uh, most interesting male uh, omission in Crowley's list of supposedly, you know, those who have carried the light of the Gnosis to us, their successors and their heirs. Well, apparently, uh, uh, either he didn't, Crowley didn't know about uh, Randolph or choose to ignore him. And some of the things that he had to say about Krishnamurti 
who he considered a rival, uh, uh, um, indicate to me that uh, he was extremely racist. And I have also uh, read one of his uh, books that the uh, the guy showing it to me, the Grand Poobah of that group, said, after showing it to me, which I don't know, was that a test of the the Jew in the chair or what? But it was a book called uh, Hitler as He Is, and it's a book that has been uh, debated for a long time. It was written during the war by a uh, uh, ex uh, associate of uh, the Third Reich, the uh, who. Um, fled to England for reasons obscure in 1940 um, and wrote a book about Hitler that seemed to convey a lot of occult uh, uh, connections that I'm not really as sure of as some people are. But Crowley got a hold of the book and he did liner notes in the margins of practically every page. And I sure wish I had a copy of those liner notes because a lot of people have hinted at his uh, fascist sympathies. But if you saw the liner notes to that book, you would have very, 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 very few doubts about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't doubt that because, I mean, Crowley was very, um, for all his kind of like counter, the love of him and the counterculture. It, he was extremely racist. I mean, he was very much a product of his time and a product of the British Empire. Exactly. It, uh, the best defense of him is that he was a product of the late Victorian era, and that is clearly right. the case, but that doesn't necessarily excuse what he was saying in 1940 in the margins of the book about Adolf Hitler and his... Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. only Hitler fully understood the book of the law. Uh, excuse me? I do... I doubt that he read it. <laughs> and if he did... <laughs> I'm detecting, Alan, that there's not much love between you and this order of ancient antiqu- antiquity. Where would you get that idea? <laughs> These are the people that take your money, take off your clothes, beat you up, and send you on your way if you speak out. Why would you think that I have any problem with, oh, the head of the order, Bill Breeze, or anyone like that. I mean, we live in the age of resident rump. So, by comparison, they're only a minor cult that I spent 20 years uh, in. Ten of which, they made me a uh, inspector general, and I inspected. And generally, I found I didn't like what I was inspecting. And then I spent ten years uh, getting out because it is a cult, and cults are hard to get out of. So the last ten or twelve years, twelve years actually, I have advocated free Illuminism, which is a whole different ball game. Nobody's in charge, has no corporate existence. And we have a really, really, really nice page on Facebook. Maybe we'll migrate that to the wiki alternative. I don't know. Cool. Well, before we get into that, I wanted to explore that these sex magic ideas and techniques were at first being, they were being characterized as Rosicrucian. Is that true? Before he really, oh, yeah, yeah. before he created the Brotherhood of Ulysses and kind of 
um, I guess, codified it more in a, under a different name? Well, actually, uh, what I regard as his last will and testament is a, uh, a paper that you will not find online, uh, unfortunately it should be, um, about the structure of his order, and he called it the triplicate order, which is the name of the book, and it cites the, uh, the combination of Rosicrucian, uh, Knights of Pythias, and the Order of Eulis. And uh, apparently, um, uh, to the end of his life, because that was published right at the end of his life, um, he, um, he claimed to be, and others have claimed for him, to be the head of the Rosicrucian order in the Western Hemisphere. And while, you know, there are a lot of people who make that claim, I think he had a better claim than, than most. Um, um, probably from Hargrave Jennings in, in Europe would be my guess, but uh, uh, he had an influence on all of the major European occultists of that period, um, and including the, the founders of that order of antiquity who were of a different caliber. Um, <clears throat> so... Yeah, they were, um, uh, he was a very influential person, and uh, I think there is a sexual gnosis understanding of the Rose Croix, and that's, uh, you know, that's not the only interpretation, of course, but it is one that once you get into it, you're going to see it almost everywhere in a somewhat Freudian manner. Absolutely. And then, uh, what are these, you write about how he established these Rose Crucian clubs around the United States were these basically like sex magic clubs it seems like yep they sure were and they eventually got raided uh, I think in the uh, turbulent period around 1870 that's where he began to uh, up until that point I think his inner circle of people pretty well knew what it was all about, or if they didn't, if they went to one of the, I believe they were called Rosicrucian Rooms. And, yeah, I think they were, um, it's very hard to know because they were secretive in the, but they were basically sacred bordellos is what they amounted to, i.e. whorehouses. Folks, I'm being plain here, but I think they were uh, in the tradition of, um, ancient cults that uh, that always had temple prostitutes. It was that sort of thing. Although, you know, the strictures in his specific uh, area, he always tried to avoid any kind of uh, sort of commercialization or downbeat approach to it. Didn't stop the cops from raiding the Rosicrucian rooms all across the country and uh, from that point on, uh, his organization was largely a paper uh, shell of what it had been. Not the ideas, but the, yeah. the organized group. If you get a hold of the triplicate order, take a look at the you know the officers. I mean, it was a very very uh, considerable organization, and um, then it wasn't, and uh, then the rights to it were. Um, are you disappearing? Hello? Uh, somebody. No, no, we're here. No, we're here. Okay, I'm here, but there's nothing on my screen. 
Okay, there you are. Okay, that's strange. Oh, that means the men in black are tuned oh, in now. Shit. They're more than likely. Guys, I'm tougher than you. I'm the <laughs> alarm, and I'm a survivor. <laughs> do, do you have any insight into what uh, brought P.B. Randolph to Nashville for his brief stay? Uh, that's something that I've been really interested in as a Nashvilleian, but... Uh, other than a few passing notes, I'm just I'm really curious. I mean, I'm well, sure he was he was ran off by some racism too, and some some kind of uh, betrayal that he hints at. But do you have any insight into that? I wonder if there was a Rosicrucian room here. Uh, there may have been, but I not I, not to my specific knowledge. I, I know of anyone that existed in the South at that time would have been really, really under wraps. However, um, the period that he was in Nashville, it wasn't that short, and it has the curious parallel to uh, one of the claimants to the heritage of the uh, uh, Order AA and that other order that I am not going to humor or advertise. uh, also lived in Nashville many years later, and uh, I don't know what the special attraction. You probably know better than I do. Who is that? He, Can you? Uh, Marcelo Moda. He was from Brazil, I believe, but uh, he immigrated to the United States, tried to uh, whip these organizations into shape, and was taken to court by the kindly. Uh, organization that I used to be affiliated with and beaten in court and uh, uh, I think he died here um, many years ago and of course in their magazine that they used to have they did a very soulful soulful obituary on him and I'm so hoping that a they don't survive me but B, if they do, if they write a soulful obituary on me, it's fortunate that they no longer really have a newsletter because newsletters have gone out of fashion. Hard copy newsletters. Yeah, I'm looking him up. This was, I mean, this is more, much more recent than, um, much more recent than Randolph. I mean, this was probably in the 70s that this happened. Yeah, but uh, the two are not necessarily unrelated. I mean, yeah. it's the. Uh, it's an odd choice of location for uh, for occultists during, well, any time before fairly recently. Uh, so um, I, I don't know if there's a connection or not, but that, that comes to mind. However, I will say this, that uh, the period, I started to say this before, the period that Randolph was in the South, and by the way, he spent a considerable amount of time in New Orleans as well, yeah. Uh, teaching a um, um, a school for uh, former slaves, and he was, um, though it wasn't the center of his life, he was an abolitionist and had given some abolitionist uh, speeches in the North, and he probably was after the Civil War and the supposedly settled period of the uh, non-Reconstruction. Um, uh, he... Um, uh, probably came south to do uh, good works for former slaves, and uh, I think that's an appropriate thing. It is said that his uh, mother was a former slave. Um, that may or may not be true. Uh, his origins are 
uh, not well documented, right. as one might expect with the uh, uh, allegedly slave mother and a uh, brother of the uh, governor of this, the uh, Commonwealth of Virginia at that time. Uh, uh, so that's where the name Randolph supposedly came from. But that may be a construction. Magicians find themselves, particularly in earlier times, having to construct a and uh, especially so for a, a, a black person advocating sexual magic in the middle of the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's my understanding that in 1874, he... He basically had a, a, the the I guess the the public establishment of the Brotherhood of Ulysses was is what happened here, and I found some some newspaper articles from here from the time period uh, that are really racist and mocking these ideas of of him organizing a lot of free blacks into some kind of occult lodges. So yeah, so who knows? It seems like uh, from everything I read in the, in the uh, what is the main biography of him also that he was only in Nashville for a few months. But you say it was it was more. Well, no, I'm not saying that it was more. I'm saying that he was in the South in the just South as he general. was in okay. Europe. Okay. He touched a lot of places. Yeah. And sort of spread light. Some would say you know not so light, but that depends on one's point of view. Uh, all over the world to the extent that, that he possibly could. He was a uh, a, a well-traveled person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, you know, total time that he spent in the South, but I suspect he went from town to town. Yeah. And we know about Nashville and we know about New Orleans because they're well-documented. That doesn't mean that he didn't come to Atlanta or, you know, or... Uh, Memphis or anywhere else that he might have come. I never did give you my answer to the question, why did he come to Nashville? Well, he decided the occult business has gone to hell. I'm going to become a country singer. (laughs) (laughs) So he changed his name to Charlie Pride, and there you go. That's it. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Was there anything else we wanted to talk about, Randolph? Oh no, that was that, that you was ask? that was pretty in depth, and I think you gave us some uh, some more paths to uh, look down. That, that was very interesting. Uh, so let's uh... In a whole triplicate order. Um, it, it, there is, since it has no copyright on it, I think a number of people have uh, you know anything that's not nailed down, people will publish now. If you look on Amazon, I think there's no Kindle or or any kind of uh, non print edition, but I think there are current print editions of it, and uh, it's an eye-opener of the end period of his life. And of course, the key thing is he names his son Osiris, Osiris Buddha Randolph, uh, as his successor upon attaining his majority, which in those days was always considered to be 21. Um, It turns out that that did not happen because Osiris Randolph became a mainstream physician, did not have a long life, but he was a successful and distinguished physician, wanted nothing to do with the occult as far as I've been able to ascertain. But his, uh, uh, Randolph's widow, mother of Osiris, uh, Kate Corson Randolph, apparently sold the rights to the Brotherhood of Ulysses 
to um, one of the Rosicrucian societies in America, one of the smaller ones actually, Beverly Hall Corporation is what it's called now, and they boulderized Randolph. So there are editions of uh, a goodly number of his works that any reference to sexual magic is toned way, way down. And that's just the taste of um, our Swinburne climber, who was the the initial head of that organization. In fact, I had a copy of one of Randolph's original documents published in his lifetime that has a little note on the back of it, and it, it indicates that it was sold to Clymer by Kate Corson Randolph. So, um, but as far as I know, she was not even a member, and they had been married for a relatively brief period. And um, I don't know of anything about her life that reflects being an occultist. So, you know, I'm not a big believer in the notion of lineages, but I don't know that just having been married to Phoebe Randolph gave her rights to the uh, Brotherhood of Eulis. Sure. Let's, let's talk about the secret cipher. What secret cipher? I don't have any secret cipher. Well, it's a secret, so. Okay. Well, we can't. <laughs> about that or even the new edition from paranoia press which is right in front of me the complete, good good person you are let me pat <laughs> you on the head it's the complete spelled correctly this time as opposed to in my book on the uh, rights of memphis because it wasn't complete it was complete C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, uh, and this is the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts. Well, what's complete about it that wasn't complete about the original? It's both, it's a combination of the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts and the sequel, which was originally meant to be one book and now is, uh, the complete, uh, uh, what did I call it? Uh, the, the uh, the, the, the Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Yeah, that was during the period when the movie The Men in Black came out. I thought that was a cool title. It, of course, has some things to say about The Men in Black. What happened with, with the entire... Well, why don't you ask some questions about it? Because that's, that's well, my best. Okay, well, let's talk about how you discovered this cipher. Like, where it came, comes from where it's derived from. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. Okay, it has a uh, um, serpentine history. In the mid-1970s, a British, uh, I guess you would call him follower of Alistair Crowley's work, uh, was uh, went on a magical retreat. He was with the... Uh, uh, the, the New Equinox uh, uh, British Journal of Ceremonial Magic and uh, um, that, that I take it was a small group of, of people independently working on uh, uh, deciphering Crowley's work and uh, he went on this magical retreat and came up with a cipher that answers to the a strangely gridded page in the original handwritten, that is, manuscript of uh, Alistair Crowley or Iwas's, if you believe Crowley's account, later account, 
of Liber Al-Velegis, a.k.a. the Book of the Law, a.k.a. liberal, which is an interesting uh, phrase coming from that source. And uh, it made a small impact as English Kabbalah, following the same rules that traditional uh, Hebrew and Greek Kabbalah follow, but using the English language, which is the language of uh, the Book of the Law, so it makes makes sense. No, we're talking about like a numerology system. No, 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 no. I will tell you that that is that has dogged me from day one. My okay. my late friend Jim Mosley, God bless him, he said, "Oh, this is numerology. Well, then you could you could do anything because there are an infinite number of numbers and there are practically an infinite number of letter combinations." No, it doesn't work that way. It's it's derived from a specific page in the handwritten manuscript, which is a redundancy there, that um, that uh, what Lee's, Jim Lee's uh, uh, realized was that people were trying to decipher, because it says on the page that there is a cipher in the Book of the Law. People had tried to use that grid across the page, and what he realized was the Book of the Law tells you how to derive the cipher, which is 11 letters apart. So he went down and diagonally and discovered that the first three letters, as Frederick Codd had discovered many years before, um, were A is 1, L is 2, W is 3, and so on, counting every 11th letter but never never going back to the initial letters. Now, that had no, no currency in this country whatsoever until a little obscure uh, independent uh, magazine devoted to uh, Crowley stuff, Crowley-related stuff, called Lima in upstate New York. He got a hold of these ideas, corresponded with the people in England who I think uh, always felt that... Uh, they didn't get enough credit for it. And it fell into the hands of a person named Tim Coutte, a rare genius with uh, vast computer skills and access to mainframe computers in the 1970s, early 80s. And he developed a program uh, called, uh, doesn't matter, you can't get it now because it was written in some language that is no longer used on floppy disks or whatever, but uh, um, there are now numerous cipher decoders uh, on the internet. So um, anyway, um, Tim yes, Coutte... I've, I've used one, yeah. Uh, it, it is a remarkable shortcut that makes my work so much easier than it was when we painfully went through A, L, W or the Azure Littered Woman Code. Anyway, he discovered that there was something very interesting that he could only discover with computer technology that, as far as I know, is still running on that computer in upstate New York. It's a mainframe computer, and uh, he left it running. But uh, he was able to condense it enough to put it on the then capacity of, of PCs and uh, the early Apple computers. and. Uh, uh, when he first brought it to my attention, uh, after he moved to Atlanta and 
before he married my ex-wife, which is a long, long story. It's a very, very incestuous universe, really. But that's not important. What is important is that he said, you've got to pay attention to this, Alan. This, this decodes all of the mystical literature throughout history that is written in the English language. And I said, well, that is the claim that traditional Hebrew Kabbalah makes uh, for the uh, Hebrew scriptures. And um, um, it, it's a question of whether it works or it doesn't work, it's like, like any of this stuff that I've been talking about. So um, I thought, well, I don't know if this is an area that I want to get into, but I'll, he, he gave me a copy of the, of the condensed computer program to run on whatever machine I had at the time. I think it was an IBM XT. This is mid-1980s or late-1980s. And at some point, I mean, I was getting these interesting results comparing the text of Liberalva Legis to the uh, cipher, and you would get very astonishing results. Uh, uh, words and phrases that seem to fit way, way beyond uh, chance expectations of something being significant. I mean, there were machine language, you know, nonsense, but not much. It was mostly uh, right on the money. So I thought this may be a valuable tool for occultists, but I have my own, you know, take on all that. So at some point, and I can't tell you even the year that I did this, I thought, well, why don't I try this on a few of the really, really weird names of planets and beings that uh, that uh, that contactees and abductees come up with for you know they're from the uh, uh, planet Piwam or the planet uh, Boca Boca or, or whatever Lanulose or something like that. Lanulose yeah. is one of the key words. Uh -huh. actually. And I ran a couple of words against this cipher and used as a base the, uh, what are called the Class A documents of the Thelemic Canon, which I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on that, but just, just to say that was my initial impression. And it came up with phrases that were right out of these particular cases, uh, like uh, the, the Woodrow Derenberger uh, uh, UFO incident where the uh, the visitor injured cold, as he said in the movie, you know, uh, yeah. and injured cold. I think injured cold may or may not have been a real name, but I ran it and it was consistent with the facts of the case. Now, Woody Derenberger, may he rest in peace, was not a highly educated person and probably had never heard of the Book of the Law, I was Alistair Crowley, or anything else in the occult, because he was uh, a good old boy. And he came up with this case, came up with the screwy names, screwy name of the being, screwy name of the planet, but they yielded results that were very similar to the whole Mothman phenomena, and I thought, jackpot. This applies to the various areas that I've said for a long time that are connected, although the connections 
so far as most people are concerned, is just it's weird stuff. So weird stuff is fine, but if they're all connected, then this ought to apply to any time you come up with a weird name or weird um, uh, designation of origin, whether it's from another planet alleged or another dimension or the past or whatever. And from that, I realized oh, I've got to write about this and <clears throat> get it to as wide a public as I can, because this can be a key to solving any of these mysteries, but most especially um, I can do what no one else does um, because I can apply it to ufology, which I know very, very well, so, and the occult. So does this, running the cipher on these names, does that give us an indication of the nature of these beings? Well, they're secretive, I guess. Uh, it, it can. What, what I have found that it does is it's predictive and may be designed to be predictive of future events um, if you look for them in the in the cipher as if let's let's stick with Indrid Cole. Indrid Cole stops uh, pulls uh, pulls the brake the the emergency brake on his UFO walks over to Woody Derenberger's car and says, hi, I'm Indrid Cold, I-N-D-R. You know, how did he get the, uh, the spelling? Doesn't matter. He got the spell. From the planet Lanulus. Before I came upon the cipher, I thought Lanulus may be uh, uh, land you lost. It may be uh, something about, you know, another, another place. But what it revealed was future cases in the in the West Virginia area. So I thought, well, predicting things that have already happened is interesting on paper, but if I disseminate this uh, idea broadly, then people will do their own research and hopefully come up with predictive uh, things in the future where they can show up with cameras and all that stuff that ghost hunters carry and uh, duly note uh, important UFO cases. And that's what I had expected to happen when um, Illuminate Press first published uh, uh, the first half of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Anybody can do it if they have the patience to work with the cipher and don't um, don't go too far afield. You will get if you if you find a current case that has what I call funny names, for lack of a better better term, and you can you you run it through the cipher and then uh, look for things like dates and locations. You will come up with specifics. And if you show up at those locations, you will probably have a fairly close encounter. Guess how many people have gotten back to me one way or the other, because I hope to prove or disprove my own contention. Guess how many have, have gotten back to me. The circulation of the book in all editions is perhaps 50,000 at this point, which is not obscure, although it seems to be widely disseminated among uh, various, various. Let's say, let's say a hundred people, but I may, I may possibly be wrong here. 
Zero. Zero. So no one's gotten Zero. back to you on it. So no People, one, no one's using it as a, as a tool. Uh, yeah, no one's using it as a, a tool. We live yeah. in a time where it, uh, people like to be entertained, but they don't use it as a tool. However, and Adam, you can do this yourself. However, if you use the tool that I have given in the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts diligently, and with a computer assist, it makes it so much easier than it was back in the day. Um, you will come up with locations and circumstances that are specific enough to um, eight times out of ten, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. I, I don't have an exact percentage, but it's far better than chance. You will have an experience with UFOs or related phenomena. Um, also, it seems to predict certain kinds of disasters, mostly involving uh, the United States crumbling infrastructure. Um, so, so similar to the Silver Bridge. Yes, and uh, in fact, there was a very similar case uh, in uh, Minnesota, I believe. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Where uh, a Mothman-type being was seen, and that's what alerted me to the case, and. Uh, a specific road in a specific place was indicated. Not the bridge, but it was the bridge on that interstate highway that collapsed, killing a number of people and terrifying a, a lot more people. And uh, So I want to make sure that I understand this. So Crowley gets this from IWAS as some kind of... It's like a, a, a tool that's given to him by... I guess, for lack of a better term, these ultra-terrestrial beings that allows the names of those beings to be used as a predictive tool to predict some calamity or some other occurrence that is also associated with these beings. You got it exactly, and I'm sure that if anyone is listening who belongs to the uh, the Crowleyan sacred community, they're cringing that you have got that exactly right, because that's not their story at all, you know, but yeah. actually, as as I say in a footnote in the in the book, somewhere in there, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if Paranoia Press reprinted the footnote, but it's a long footnote, it basically says the essence of the Alistair Crowley argument for the uh, 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 supernatural, if you will, origin of the Book of the Law is that it somehow relates to the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, which is not that UFOs are from uh, Mars, which was the original configuration, but that uh, they represent something from another reality or a higher reality or, or whatever. Yes. And yet they, you know, the, the, the hardcore people treat it as uh, sacred writ, not the, not the words of a um, traitor human intelligence, which is the way Crowley later described it. Well, his, I mean, his initial description was very different, actually. I mean, the, the you know, IWAS is one thing, and then you have Lamb, who, I mean, that's we've said it a lot on this show, that Lamb is, essentially, if you look at that picture, Lamb is basically a gray alien. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that Lamb is a gray alien, but uh, that gray aliens possibly are not 
alien. There's something that is here that is an intelligence that exists here and has existed here alongside of us that we can tap into. And so I, that being said, I mean, it's, it's really no surprise to me that Crowley was, was, was actually talking to some form of intelligence that would be, that would give him these, this, um, this cipher or yeah, at least instill it, it in his writing. Well, I think what, what was given to him and it says in the book of the law for whatever that's worth, that Crowley would never be able to decipher it, although God yeah. knows he tried. And he didn't. The, uh, his uh, magical child, watch the Crowleyans wince again, uh, uh, Charles Stanfield Jones, uh, Frederick Hodd, uh, was able to work out the first three letters, but not the context, because in the, in the standard English alphabet, A is 11 letters from L, and 11 letters from L to W. If you went on with it, you would get the get the entire uh, schmear there, so, as they say in uh, uh, in Siberia, so uh, and parts of Iraq. But, uh, so each of these names has a numerical value, and then there's some significance to these numerical values, which are the numerical system that Crowley puts forth. Like 11 is very important. 93. These are all very important in Crowley's okay. system. Yeah, well, 93 has become like your standard greeting because it's the breakdown, in, not in uh, Nuyan English Kabbalah, but uh, in more I've always thought that uh, people that uh, parrot Crowley's use of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law at the beginning of every conversation, love is law, love under will at the end, are... You know, they're, they're parents, they're not uh, uh, thinking for themselves. And then the short version of that is 93, 93, 93, 93 at the end of it. That's fine. I don't have any, you know, basic objection to that, but I don't think it was meant to become a, uh, you know, the uh, salam or shalom or whatever of the, uh, the, belie- the true believers in the... Uh, in the doctrines, so-called, of Alistair Crowley, who was not a very doctrinaire person. So eleven comes up again and again, and I'll I'll read this from from eleven from the is book. the number of magic according to the Book of the Law. So 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 here's some of the names um, that you pull from Crowley's system, and then also from the um, contactee literature. Um, Iaziz equals 65, equals 6 plus 5, equals 11. Iwas equals 38, equals 3 plus 8, equals 11. Moriah, I'm not familiar with that one, equals 56, equals 5 plus 6. Moriah, it's a theos- one of the theosophical ascended masters. Okay, and that, all, that also equals 11. Ashtar, the Ashtar command, the Van Tassel stuff, that's 47, mm-hmm. equals 4 plus 7, equals 11. Furcon, I know that's another one of the contactee uh, beings. Equals 83, equals 8 plus 3, equals 11. Aura Reigns, that's Truman Bethram, uh, Paramore, equals 92, equals 9 plus 2, equals 11. And then you talk about Ray Palmer that said that he had a fact, his secret fact, F-A-C-T, which when you run it through the numerical value of that through the cipher is 56, equals 5 plus 6, equals 11. And the interesting thing is I, I knew Ray Palmer slightly, I mean, I met him a couple of times, but 
He was a brilliant but strange guy. But whenever he wrote about his fact that in his day, and that would be uh, circa 1940s to 1970s, where he was you know, a big mover and shaker in the uh, world of the UFO and, uh, and uh, ghosts and goblins and uh, other beasties, he always capitalized, I believe this is the case, always may be a risk, but very frequently, if not always, capitalized the word fact, F-A-C-T. He said, I know a fact yeah. that, and, uh, that gives me a clarity about these phenomena that most people don't have. And when I, you know, many years later, uh, started using the cipher, I had a tendency, I, I don't do it so much anymore, but I had a tendency to capitalize the word or phrase that I'm uh, looking for the number value in the, in the cipher, and then the, the word or, or sequence of words that it yields. And I realized, hey, this is the same thing. Why don't I try it on, Red Palmer said I have a fact, F-A-C-T, and uh, it's right there in the book, you know, so... Maybe he was privy to the cipher long before me. Certainly, I have reason to believe that uh, uh, the head of BSRA, the Portal and Sciences Research Associates, uh, the original leader of it, it's had many since then, and still exists as a Mead Lane, was both a ceremonial magician of, in an era where that such were very rare from the mid-1940s on, um, uh, described UFOs before the Kenneth Arnold case in 1947, uh, well before, two, three or four years before, um, in the book The Coming of the Guardians, which is online somewhere, I think, on their site, actually. Um, he may have been privy to the cipher in real time. He could have gotten it from any number of sources, including... Uh, uh, the, the late WW Webb of QBLH, because there was definitely a, an overlap between those two guys, both interesting and very weird people. I guess I can say that. Uh, they're both, they've both gone on to that big saucer in the sky, so I suppose it's okay. Anyway. You talk <clears throat> about Ray Palmer, um, too, and the, the, this whole fact um, aspect of it. And his association, of course, with Richard Shaver, and that Shaver, this is the Deeros mythology, uh, his stuff, that Shaver actually had some kind of cipher that he called the Mantong or something like that? Mantong, yes. Yeah. Or Mantong. He had the, the most interesting and radical notions about the antiquity of the world. There are lots of uh, weird inner earth uh, uh, notions around. I don't. I don't think there's. Uh, I don't think the earth is hollow, and I don't think there are beings inside it. But I do think that there is very, very strong evidence. And then I get into some of this in in that book, and for that matter, in the, in some of my other books, um, including God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, from Blue Star Publishing. Blah, blah, blah. Um, who said plug, plug, plug? Go away, you demons. 
okay, I've driven the demons out because I'm a licensed exorcist and everybody has to have a hobby, right? Uh, what was I know I who saying? I'm coming to if I need an exorcist. <laughs> we were talking about you were talking about Shaver and we were talking about the uh, uh, yeah the uh, Shaver cipher. Shaver Shaver thought that these beings were in caves in part because they said so, but he also thought they were devious and dishonest, and uh, also it was uh, sort of like some of the conventional cave systems that we have, like Mammoth Cave or uh, the Purgatory of St. Patrick, where weird stuff is seen in these caves, the suggestion is that these are not entrances to the uh, underworld or the inner earth or anything that uh, would be geologically unlikely, say nothing of biologically, um, but more like portals to other dimensions, and that gets us right back to where we started with the uh, the uh, quantum physics connection, because the many worlds interpretation, while it doesn't, while the orthodox uh, uh, exponents of it are only beginning to say there may be interaction between other universes, literally other universes, and our own. Um, in general, they, they shy away from that. That's a big step, but it's no loss for me to say that perhaps what we have is not the entrance to the uh, inner earth, but the uh, uh, natural portals to other dimensions. It would also parenthetically explain a lot of things that go on in magical circles, because, well, magical circles is a double entendre there, um, because in a magical invocation or evocation, you're enjoying this a lot, aren't you? I telepathically know that. In, in magical invocation or evocation, you are basically opening a portal. And yes. it's not a natural portal, it's a uh, sort of a um, psychic technology portal. Whereas one organization calls itself the technicians of the sacred. And, uh, yeah, it's magic is a technology. It's, um, and that begins to make sense in, in more conventional terms, although it's totally devastating to the current uh, orthodox worldview. And uh, I have covered in a, in a number of cases... Uh, beings that seem to have come through portals and be seen to come through portals. In fact, the host of a, of a program that I did uh, recently for, uh, for um, the publishers at Paranoia Press related a story to me that clearly involved huge uh, cryptid-like beings, but gigantic, not something you would ordinarily see, going into caves at an impossible angle on mountains, which he personally witnessed, and I, along with UFO sightings, attended to it, and I think that uh, um, there are far more of these stories out there, it's just that mostly people don't look for them, because the great mystery to me is why in 1947, when this whole area became suddenly in the public eye, um, 
that people immediately go to their either natural phenomena or they are visitors from another planet. They're not seen coming from other planets. They're not seen in deep space. Uh, Oumuamua may be the exception to that. Uh, and the distances involved in, in regular space are outside of our solar system are far greater right. than most people even vaguely comprehend. They're seen on or near the Earth in all cases. Now, the contactees claim that once they are aboard a uh, ether ship or whatever they want, you know, different terminology, that they are flown to other planets, but who's to say they're inside? Who's to say that it's not simply a... Um, sort of a Star Trek move into another dimensional world and they're told throwing off, uh, you know, from getting too familiar with them. Oh, we're on the planet uh, Piwam and and we, we're the naked beings that uh, live here that survived the catastrophe that happened on Venus, which is actually the story that uh, uh, contactee Ralph Lale uh, uh, told me about uh, his encounter with the beings that live under Brown Mountain in North Carolina. Is there a deceptive or a kind of um, tricksterish quality to the, some of these experiences? Absolutely. I think all of them. Now, I don't know whether people are tricking themselves because they're encountering something that's just beyond our kin. Uh, the, the old book, uh, Flatland, kind of implies that this, this sort of thing will happen. A two-dimensional being will have a lot of trouble dealing with a three-dimensional being. And a three-dimensional yes. being would have even more trouble comprehending a four-dimensional being, to say nothing of, you know, an infinite number of dimensions in some sense of the term dimension. Um, I think that that, you know, I've, I've seen uh, Carl Sagan talked about that on Cosmos. You know, I, I think that that explains the paranormal essentially. That you, you, it's 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 how we're perceiving something from an, from another area, from another dimension. Yeah, I'm not sure Carl Sagan believed that. He had a yeah, very famous, yeah. famous thing that he said about, which was very revealing, I think, uh, at, the, at the time. Um, he's in space now, where he belongs, but he said that uh, there's only so much money for funding, and if funding would go either to UFO research or to um, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life, which is basically uh, radio telescopes and uh, other more recent innovations in that direction, he prefers the latter, not the former. And uh, funding being what it is, that is a choice, I think. He made the wrong choice, but that's, you know, there's no arguing with a person who has gone on to his reward. Um, but uh, he was definitely, he chose to be a naysayer about UFOs and uh, yes. related matters. Yeah. And I think that that particular statement sort of impeaches his, uh, impeaches the word of the week. Uh, impeaches his uh, his uh, adherence to the notion that UFOs don't exist. I don't think they have anything to do with other planets or other you know uh, solar systems or 
planetary systems or whatever, but I do think that they're perfectly real, and one has to ask the question eventually, why was that the first thing that came into people's minds? It's, it brings me to the second question is, why do people say they believe or don't believe in UFOs? I mean, it's not a belief system. It's a, uh, it's a hypothesis or a, uh, or a, uh, uh, a quest for facts. Or uh, it, It's certainly not a belief system in the sense that uh, some religious doctrines are belief systems. So um, I just, I don't get why those were the words that leaked into people's minds in as early as 1947. I believe in flying saucers, and they come from Mars. And when we got too familiar with Mars, it was um, Alpha Centauri, which is not impossible, but when you get beyond that, they come from another galaxy. Yeah, it gets further Good. and further out. The more we know about the solar system, and there's no life in the solar system, it gets further and further out. Yeah. And wow. back when it was the pre-technological age... And you could really go back to fairy lore. These beings are saying that they were from over the hill somewhere, some other village that you know nobody knew, that no one knew about. I mean, it's just it just gets further and further out beyond our comprehension. And so this exactly. phenomenon reflects back what we expect out of it. It used to be a lost land or a Shambhala or something right, like that. Right. Magonia. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Jacques Vallée's great contribution. I think that, uh, and earliest actually, uh, he did a conventional UFO book uh, when I first met him, which was, gosh, 1965, I think. Um, uh, which was, I don't even remember the name of the book, but it was your conventional, uh, there's something to this phenomena type thing. Uh, to a series of books about uh, fairy lore, which he said, I put aside my, I'm paraphrasing, but he puts aside his scientist hat and looks into the the lore that seems to fit in with uh, UFO lore. And again, UFO lore is almost identical to near-death experiences, uh, is very nearly identical, very nearly identical to shared death experiences, which is something there's been less research on. The very rare between life experiences, non-hypnosis types that uh, Dr. Stevenson uncovered in reincarnation cases are suggestive of the same thing. They're all different angles. We're the blind guys touching the elephant in different places or the uh, Plato's Cave. I mean, either of those analogies will, will do quite nicely. And um, I think the thing is to go with it. You know, uh, if you go to the entrance of a cave and you see goblins, the first thing you conclude is not, oh, well, there must be truth in uh, the inner earth and there's a, there are cities down there. Uh, and, you know, the, the, that whole mythos, what you say is, oh, went into the entrance of a cave, and like people before me, in hundreds of caves for as many years as human beings have been around, we see very colorful and strange things. And they indicate something. What is it that they indicate? Let's investigate and 
see, but it seems to be the same thing. It's over the hill. It's under the hill. It's near the hill. It's on the Venusberg, uh, whatever. Same stories, different, different tellings. Alan, I wanted to ask you about one of the other thing in, thing in the book before we let you go, and um, that's um, about Oannes, the the god from the sea, and the connection to Sirius. Mm-hmm. I mean, this honestly, you could do a whole show about this. Just, yeah, it really is. I mean, this is you're gonna close some, on that one because that's a yeah, long topic. Yeah, I'd be glad to yeah, come I, back and do Oannes. Actually, the name John is derived from Oannes, and the name yeah. shows up in ma- magical rituals, and of course, in my book, I show how to invoke the Oannes. But it raises questions about whether Sirius is seriously the origin of these uh, um, uh, uh, amphibious beings, because. While it is efficacious to, to do the ritual that I propose at the helical rising of Sirius at, at, at midsummer, um, it doesn't mean that they come from Sirius. That's more like a, an alignment that is useful in creating a portal that allows the Oannes to come through. Uh, apparently, the Sumerians uh, knew that technology and... Uh, they uh, they developed a civilization to a higher level than it had been, according to the orthodox view of history, prior to that time. Of course, they're now finding even older civilizations, but they all seem to be, you know, looking for connections to the uh, to the proper star in order to achieve uh, certain uh, evocations. And uh, the honest is one. There again, like my book as a whole, you can read it, digest it. You have to digest it pretty thoroughly, but you can test what I'm saying. And if you get a negative view, for for heaven's sake, send me an email and say, this is baloney, because I'll count it. You know, if I get a thousand, it's this is baloney. And 10,000, hey, this really worked out, which I now get online because a lot more people see what I'm saying in real time online, um, I'm going to say, well, the preponderance of evidence is I got it right. But if I get it wrong and I'm still around, I'm going to say, forget it. No refunds, but (laughs) I was wrong. They really do come from Sirius. The problem with Sirius is it's a blue star, which means it's a relatively new star. And I would, you know, if, if I'm going to credit interstellar uh, beings, which there are a lot of stars, there are a lot of planets out there, so it's not impossible. Sirius would not be a good candidate for origin because it's a, as compared to our sun, it's a very young, very hot star and part of a, uh, a double or triple star system, which is... Uh, not your most likely place to have a planet that favors any kind of life, even vaguely as we know it. Life as we don't know it is harder to discuss, although I'm perfectly willing, but that is really a longer discussion. So are we at all illuminated or 
am I eliminated? <laughs> I feel very eliminated. Yes, absolutely. Which, um, E or I? I after E, except, never mind. <laughs> I'll assume you said illuminated, which will get you some mail that will say, so how do I join the Illuminati? Yeah, I, I, I get those. To me, I'll set them straight. I, I, I get people trying to get me to join the Illuminati on the on the uh, podcast uh, Podomatic page. It's very weird. They they like to leave comments trying to get me to join. They, just, leave, they leave a phone number for me to call, too. You just need to give them your bank account and routing number, and I'm sure they will uh, <laughs> yeah, advance you through the system really quick. Something like that. Uh, Alan, t- uh, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Please tell us a little bit about um, your new book about... God never does the same thing twice. And what it's about. Oh, uh, it's not about God or doing things twice. It's uh, That's a phrase from the 18th century uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman of Berdchev, and uh, uh, which he has his followers to call themselves the Knock Knocks, and they're uh, a, an interesting bunch of people. But the book is basically a an allegory, which I pulled out all the stops. I, I didn't ask myself, is this going to sound stupid or weird or what? The uh, introductory remarks are pretty much conventional. Everything else in the book is allegorical but important. And it gets right down to the notion of the, in the subtitle, Messiahs or Madmen. And it talks talks about... Jesus and Aleister Crowley in a two out of three tag team match, winner take all. And that's where the book goes in a kind of free form, written over a period of years. And I decided, what the hey, I'm going to pull this together. And it's a short book. It's an easy read. But if you get it, then it's a little bit like a Zen cone. What is the sound of one hand clapping? The master slaps you in the face, and that's supposed to enlighten you. So it's my effort to enlighten my readers. Get it. Buy it. You'll love it. Or hate it. Either one is a good response to it, I think. And where can people get the complete secret cipher of the UFO nuts? Well, you can get it from Paranoia Press directly. They're on, you know, they're just Google them if you don't know the address. Or from any of the usual outlets, as I have become fond of calling it uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, online, uh, Amazon online, uh, and uh, as far as I know, all of the usual online outlets have it. Uh, what remaining bookstores are, you know, uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores there are, I don't know. Um, um, but uh, just the usual outlets will get you a spanking new copy of it and it is in print for the foreseeable future and is doing quite well i don't have any you know broad statistics yet but it's it's doing quite well and more to follow but i can't talk about that excellent excellent alan um sergio is anything else that you wanted to add or not at all that was a great conversation we hope to um, keep in contact with you as we're not very far yeah we're not Well, let me say something cryptic that is for you alone, for you two alone, and your audience will just have to wonder. I did not use the jar, not even once. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Good good night and good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. 
Stay on the line for us, Alan. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to close out this show on Conspiranormal. Technical difficulties. <laughs> Something happened. I don't know what. But uh, that was an interesting interview with T. Allen Greenfield. Yeah, that was very, very fascinating. Yeah. And uh, as always, even though there was a ton of information in that in that interview, in this show, there is a lot in this book. The yeah. complete secret cipher, the Euphonauts. Euphonauts. Hopefully and, we had uh, some kind of linearity, but it is a very extensive and uh, kind of travels all over the place with yeah. all the different stuff we're talking yeah. about. Because we yeah. didn't just talk about this book. We talked about P.B. Randolph. a lot of other stuff. Yeah, a ton of other stuff. And uh, we talked to Alan, and we're going to try to get him back on uh, sometime next year, probably a couple of times at least, to try to get him on to talk about some of the other items that are in this book and also the series that he's been doing about occult fascism that he's been writing about on his Facebook page, which is T Allen Greenfield, Allen, a double L E N. And, uh, that's a little bit about like the contactee movement and some of the, um, links with some like fascist movements yeah. in the 1940s. We kind of mentioned that on, Yep, the uh, roundtable episode that we did, right. like like the IM, the IM movement, Guy Ballard, and how that was influenced uh, influenced uh, William Dudley Pelly, and how some of that influenced later on post World War II the contactee movement. So we're gonna get him on to talk about that too. We didn't even so. talk about free Illuminism. Yeah, um, we it, it kind of got briefly mentioned. Yeah, yeah, but but there's a lot of other stuff we'd like to explore further with him. Yeah, we we Great did. Some, mind. There was a lot about uh, there was a lot about an ancient order of antiquity. Yeah, that was in there too. So that was uh, that was quite interesting. So that's uh, I, I don't. Is there anything that you want to add about this? Or oh, not really. I just uh, wish we had more time to get to even more stuff. But we'll make that up for future yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely will. I think this is going to be like a one of our like he'll be a frequent guest. I think on this on this show. So that's it, guys. I think we're going to call it um, next time. I'm not sure who we've got coming on as of this moment, but I'm sure that we will have a show. Um, we're recording this on November 19th, so we're actually taking a little bit of a two-week break because of Thanksgiving and all that, but you'll never know that right? because this will be coming out after Thanksgiving. So for, for you, you'll just hear show after show after show, but we're actually going to be taking a break. That's what happens in the past and with time travel and all that kind of good stuff. And we're we're really uh trying to get a lot of ideas together and get ready for next year. We really wanna yeah. wanna up the game next year. Uh we wanna maybe make some some slight changes and uh try to take this thing as far as we can. Yeah. Uh I think really one of the things that we need to, to change about is like the Patreon and uh get some ideas of what we wanna do with that. Uh, we haven't updated that in a while. 
I don't think, but uh, we're going to try to do some special things on Patreon. Absolutely. And I then also going into the new year to help us with all this. We just really encourage all you guys to, to please uh, give us feedback. Tell us what would you'd like to see and, and yeah. what you like about the show and, and how we could improve. And yeah, and it's going can... to help us out a lot. You can do that a few different ways. I mean, there's conspiranormal at gmail.com. There's um, the Facebook page, conspiranormal Facebook page. You can post on there. Uh, you know, leave a review on iTunes. You can do that as well. I do I've found a way now I can actually see reviews from other countries now, too, not just from iTunes in the United States. Uh, somebody said that uh, one of us sounded like Billy Bob Thornton. I think it's you, Adam. Uh, you think that's me? I think I sound like Billy Bob Thornton? Not okay. really, but that's probably right. thing about you. All right, cool. Uh, so, hey, just the usual stuff, guys. Follow us on the Facebook page, YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast, Patreon, www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. You can, lead, you can join for a dollar. Like I said, we haven't updated in a little while, but there are plenty of shows on there for people to listen to right now. Mm -hmm. uh, several hours of worth of shows at the moment. So I think that's it. I think we're going to call it. Yeah. So thank you guys, and we'll be back next time on Conspiranormal. please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.